morning, Calvary Hill. Praise the Lord. New. 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 Newness. Even the very mention of those words does something to us. Scientists have done research for years now on what newness does to us mentally, emotionally, and physically. When we receive something new, when we partake in something new, some new experience or some new activity, or we receive a gift of something new, it literally psychologically does something to us, mentally, emotionally, and physically. Of course, we know that we are not just mental, emotional, and physical. We are also spiritual, so newness does something to us spiritually as well. So it seems, on a psychological level, that human beings are affected by newness. This means we like the way that it affects us, so we seek after newness, we long for newness, we go after newness. Of course, our enemy knows this. Our enemy knows this. So what the enemy will do is he will present all kinds of new things that aren't good for us. So just because it's new doesn't mean it's good. But when the Lord does something new, it is always good. So we are actually wired by God. We are wired as human beings by God mentally, emotionally, physically, and spiritually to love newness. We long for it. We go after it. When when newness comes from the Lord, it is going to affect our entire being and it will be ultimate goodness for us. The Lord goes so far as to say in Revelation chapter 21 verse 5, Behold, I am making all things new. As Israel is freed from Egypt, can you imagine the sense of newness that they have. For 430 years, it has been the same thing. Generation after generation after generation after generation. Slavery and bondage to Egypt. But now, God had done something new. Imagine what it must have felt like for them as they left Egypt and the emotional, mental, physical, and spiritual realities that were hitting them all at one moment as they were walking out of Egypt for the first time in 430 years. Would have affected them on every level. But of course, since Pharaoh still existed and Pharaoh was still alive and Egypt was still a country and a superpower, there was a chance that they would end up going back to the old either by force or by choice. 
the reality of that threat was still there. So what we're going to read about this morning is God stepping in to say, when I deliver my people into the new, I ain't going to let them go back to the old. I'm not going to let them go back. I am going to act in such a way. I'm going to work in such a way that I will prohibit them from ever going back to what it was. And we're going to see that ultimate reality in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's an amen right there. Just in case you didn't know. You don't have to say it, but you better be thinking it in your heart and your head and your mind. So let's look this morning how God moves on Israel's behalf. That their newness was real and lasting. And that they truly were entering into a new world. The text this morning is going to be Exodus chapter 13 verse 17 through the end of chapter 14, which is... 31 verses in chapter 14. So we're not going to read the whole thing up front. We're going to break it down section by section. And each section you'll have the text um, and the point up on the screen. So you'll know kind of what we're hitting on and where we're kind of focusing in on. The first thing I want you to see in chapter 13 is God's new guidance. God's new guidance. This is going to be in Exodus chapter 13, verse 17, where we start. But I don't want to look there first. I actually want us to look down at verses 21 and 22. In this first section, the, these verses, the concept of God leading or guiding Israel is mentioned five times. Now, as a biblical um, principle, when you're studying Scripture and something is repeated over and over and over again, you ought to stop, pause, and take notice and look at it because it's probably pretty important. So right off the bat, as they leave Egypt, we have now this language of God guiding Israel and God leading Israel mentioned five times in a, a short span of verses. So it's probably pretty important for us to take notice of this. And we read in verses 21 and 22 exactly how God is now leading them. So in verse 21 of chapter 13, we read these words. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, and that they might travel by day and by night, the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night, and it did not depart from the people. This is a brand new way of God's lead, God leading. Okay, This is something they have never experienced before. They've never seen anything like this before. I mean, this is new as new gets. A pillar of fire wrapped in a thick, dense cloud so that during the day, the cloud is visible and not the fire, and at night, the fire is visible. That's probably what we're dealing with here. It's probably not two different things. It's not like, you know, it, it's daytime, and so there's this cloud, and then right at dusk, the cloud just kind of gets sucked up, and the fire comes shooting down on the ground. It's probably not what's happening. Probably what's happening is you've got a pillar of fire surrounded in dense smoke that is leading Israel in where they're supposed to go, and at night, you can actually see the fire inside. And so they're able to travel by day. They can travel by night. This is a manifestation of God's presence. This wasn't a natural event. 
Okay, some people have tried to argue when they break down these verses, some people try to argue that maybe there was a volcano that had erupted and so there was ash and smoke and fire. Makes no sense to what the text actually says. This is a supernatural manifestation of the presence of God. We actually read in, in chapter 14, verse 19, and a little bit later, that the angel of the Lord is in the pillar. So when we see this pillar, we're dealing with a manifestation of God's presence. Okay, God is in this pillar and he is leading and guiding and directing Israel in this new way. And it's going to be constant. It's going to be with them during the day. It's going to be with them during the night. Always a visible manifestation of God's presence. What a gracious and glorious thing God is doing for them. Nobody's ever experienced anything like this. There's no question where they're supposed to go. Moses doesn't have to go, Aaron, what do you think? Yeah, yeah, I mean, where should we go next? Aaron's like, I don't know, follow God's cloud. Like, there's no, there's no question about when they're supposed to stop and where they're supposed to go next. God is going to lead and guide them. This is so gracious on God. But as we know with God, he doesn't always lead us in the easiest path, does he? He leads us in the path that is best for us, not what is easiest for us. There are so many times in my life where I wish God would have made things easier in the moment. I look back and I praise God that he didn't. Thank you, Lord, that you made this path really hard because of what it did to me, how it changed me, how my view of you grew and got bigger. So God is going to lead Israel not through the easiest and quickest path, but a much longer, harder path. Now, here's what's going to happen. When they leave Egypt, they go to a place called Succoth. And this place that they, 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 they go, once they leave there, the quickest route to the promised land would have been as north as you could go in Africa, right along the south part of the Mediterranean Sea. If you know your geology, I mean your geography, you'll know that you can see it in your mind, or you maybe have a map, you can pull something up on your phone, you can look. That would be the quickest route. You, you go, you head north, you stay north, right along the south part of the Mediterranean Sea, and you head straight across the Promised Land. The problem with that is we find out in verse 17 of chapter 13 that you would have to then travel through Philist a Philistine land. You would have to travel through one of the giant armies of the world in order to get where you're going to go. And, and I, I want you to see what God says here about them. It says, when people, verse 17, when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. So here's what God knows. God knows if I take them the quickest route, the straight shot from from Africa straight into the Middle East and to the Promised Land, if I do that, they're going to see the army of the Philistines and they're going to quit, give up, and they're going to go right back to Egypt. They're going to say, forget it. We're not ready to fight these people. We don't have a military. We've been enslaved for 430 years. It's not like we've had time to train. We, we're not ready for this. Let's just go back. Now, here's the thing. Israel doesn't even know that this was an option for God. They don't know that that army was there. They don't know. God is sparing them even the temptation of wanting to quit and go back. 
He's like, I'm not even going to lead you through this, through this path. Now, here's something very inter interesting that you got to notice. God could have just taken out the Philippines. The Philippines? My gosh. <laughs> God could have taken out the Philistines. I mean, he could take out the Philippines, too, if he wants. I mean, he could take out anybody. He wants. In this case, it's the Philistines. He could very easily take them out. But he has another enemy in mind. It's not time to deal with the Philistines yet. We'll deal with them later. Right now, we're dealing with the Egyptians still. And, it's, and so what God does is he brings them south. Now, not, not deep, deep south in Africa, but he brings them south. And what he does is he brings them south to the Red Sea. Now, we don't exactly know where along like how deep it goes. We don't know if it goes down to the Suez Canal. We don't know if it, if it hits one of the tributaries that comes off. We don't know exactly where the location is, okay? Uh, historians have tried to, to decipher exactly where the crossing would be of the Red Sea, and we just simply don't know for sure. But what we know for sure is that God brings them south to the Red Sea, and he tells them to stay there. Now, that means they've come up, they've literally backed themselves into a corner with the Red Sea behind them and a wilderness in front of them. They're in between a desert wilderness and the Red Sea. And God says, that's where I want you to stay. Another thing that I find really interesting in verse 18, after it says that God brought them around the way of the wilderness to the Red Sea, and the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. If you have the ESV, it will say equipped for battle. I don't think that's a very good translation. Okay. Uh, anybody else have a different translation uh, other than equipped for battle? You just yell it out if you have it. Everybody says equipped for battle or in 318? Okay. Here's why it's translated equipped for battle. The Hebrew word, the root of the Hebrew word means fits. Um, so what people think is... There's a tendency to think that he was breaking them up into ranks for military purposes, right? So we're going to have a, a group of 50, a platoon of 50 here, and then we're, we're breaking them up. Probably what has happened, the word fifths can be translated ranks. It probably should just simply be translated equipped for proper travel, what God did when they left Succoth is God said, I mean, imagine, right? God tells them, you be ready to go. When the death angel comes, when, when the firstborn die, that next day, you get ready and you're getting out of here. Remember, they, they went so fast, the bread didn't even get, get done cooking, right? So as soon as it happens, they, they, they're, they're ready. They go and they take off and they're out of the land. There was an organization. There wasn't any kind of plan as far as like how many groups are going to go where and how we're going to align ourselves. None of that. Once they get to suck off, what happens is, is that then I think verse 18 is telling us that God then organizes the travel, equips them in ranks for traveling. They don't have time to come up with a military presence. So when it says equipped for battle, they still don't have time to get a, an army ready. And another thing that indicates that to us is because if they had an army ready, then maybe they could have dealt with the Philistines, but they weren't ready for this. They didn't have time to get an army ready yet. 
So now I think what verse 18 is saying is that now they're equipped for travel. He did break them up into ranks for traveling purposes, right? How are we going to travel with a million people? What's the best way to do this? So that's what I think verse 18 is saying. So now they're organized. They're ready for travel. The Lord takes them south to the Red Sea. And now they're stopped between a wilderness desert and the sea, which, as I said, the precise location is not known to us. And then what God does, what Israel does, what Pharaoh does, and what God does, God gives them a new assurance of the work that he's going to do. In verse 3 of chapter 14, we read this. God is telling what's going to happen. Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And God says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. He will pursue them and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host. And the Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh. And they did so. So God takes them down to a place that doesn't make natural human sense to go. Right? If you're traveling to the promised land, why are you coming up to the Red Sea and camping there and, and, and trapping yourself. What Pharaoh is going to think is, these people don't know what they're doing. My goodness, they're, they're just wandering around out there. And God's going to harden his heart, so he says, let's go get these people back. Now, tell me that makes sense from Pharaoh's point of view. Listen, if there's one thing that the Bible is clear on, sin doesn't make sense. Sin is not rational, it is not logical, it is not sensible. It goes against everything that we should be as human beings. Pharaoh, he has lost his son, and yet he still thinks, you know what, I'm going to go after these people again. Makes no sense. That's what he's going to do. And God is going to... Empower his resolve to do it. Throughout this entire Exodus story, we said that God is at war with the deities of Egypt. And remember when I went through the, the nine different signs and wonders, we talked about how every sign that God did, every wonder that he did, would have humiliated one of the deities of Egypt. You remember this? God has made it clear those deities are nothing and that he's the only one true God. Now God is going to be at war with Pharaoh himself. Now he is at war with Pharaoh himself. Pharaoh now has taken up arms against God's people. And now God is going to be, deal with him. Because what Pharaoh wants to do in verse 5 is he wants to go and he wants to get them and he wants to enslave them once again. Pharaoh gets 600 chariots along with the horsemen and his army and he gathers them together and he tracks Israel to the Red Sea. And in verse 9, we read these words. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them and camped at the sea. Israel has camped with no place to retreat. And now they see Pharaoh coming with his army. 
When Israel sees this, it causes them great fear and they complain to Moses in verse 11. They said to Moses, It is because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. In other words... You've brought us out here to die. We could have just died in Egypt. We told you originally, Moses, when you came and told us that God was going to let us go, we told you to leave us alone. And now look what's happened. You can tell from these words, they are are being driven by sheer emotion. Right? Right? They're camped. They see the army coming. This is nothing but sheer emotional response. It is fear and not faith. Even after everything that God had done to deliver them out, they are working based on fear. Didn't I just say sin makes no sense? You would think that they would go, well, feel bad for Pharaoh. I don't know what he's planning but this ain't going to go well. How many times has God got to show this guy what's going on? But they are freaking out because they're motivated out of fear and not faith. Sin now is 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 the fear that they're involved in, and it makes no sense. Everything that they saw the Lord do in Egypt, now they were doubting that the Lord would come through for them. By the way, this is a common refrain that we're going to see for the next 40 years with Egypt. If you know the story, you know how many times this happens. And before you get all mad and and think how stupid they are without the Spirit of God indwelling you, that'd be exactly what you do every single time tough times come. But I want you to look at the reassurance of the Lord here. This is a kind of reassurance we haven't seen from God in, in Israel up to this point. Verse 13 and 14. And Moses said to the people, fear not. Now, by the way, Moses is saying this. Guess where he got these words from? God. Moses ain't just making up what's going to happen here. God is telling him, hey, tell the people what to do. And here's what he said. Fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of Yahweh, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians who you see today, literally that you're looking at right now, you shall never see them again. Yahweh will fight for you And you only have to be silent. First, he says, fear not and stand firm. What are they supposed to stand firm in? Faith. Not fear, faith. And guess what their faith is going to require them to do? Nothing. Sometimes human beings, Christians, the hardest thing for us to do is nothing. Because we see a situation like, how can I fix this? How can I make this better? What can I do? And sometimes God is saying, you stop doing anything and watch me do everything. God has just said to them, you see those Egyptians over there? You're never going to see them again. I'm going to kill all of them. And you won't have to lift a finger. You just stand firm in your faith and watch what I do. 
Because this is not the people of Israel against Egypt and Pharaoh. This is God against Egypt and Pharaoh. God is going to deal with Pharaoh. He's already dealt with the deities. Now he's going to deal with the man himself. As Jonah says in the book of Jonah, salvation belongs to Yahweh. We don't save ourselves from troubled times. We don't save ourselves from difficulties. We don't save ourselves when it comes to our new birth and justification and the gospel. Salvation belongs to God. What a reassurance God has just given them. And I love that God is patient because my goodness, could he not just say, are you kidding me right now? Are you serious right now? Have you thought about what I I have just done for you over and over and over again to prove how great and mighty I am? And yet, you still fear and doubt. But God graciously gives them this reassurance. And now he's going to give them this new victory. God tells Moses what's going to happen in verses 15 through 18. The actual events take place in 19 through 31. So let's look at the actual events, and they're incredible. Verse 19. Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them. So the pillar of cloud has led them south. Africa up to the Red Sea and has been in front of them as they came to the Red Sea. So they've encamped and the pillar of fire and cloud has been probably on the side of the Red Sea, right? Now the Egyptian army is coming. The pillar moves and then comes behind Israel to get in between Egypt and Israel so that the two cannot come. They can't get to each other. All right. And probably also what is going to happen is this is going to prevent Egypt from seeing what is happening on the other side until the next morning. And in verse 21, this is what God told Moses to do. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the Lord drove back the strong east wind all night. By the way, the east wind is also what brought the locusts. Just to let you know. I don't know what that means, but God likes the east wind, I guess. East wind comes, splits the sea all night, made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And look at what happens. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right and on their left. This happens at night. So at night, God parts it and they begin crossing. Now, it's going to take a long time for over a million people to cross. I think from the text, Pharaoh doesn't know what's going on. Okay. But as dawn comes. They are now allowed to see, I think, what's happening and they probably see Well, I know they see the water split and Israel finishing up crossing 
on dry ground. And Pharaoh, seeing this, in verse 22, the Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and cloud looked down on Egypt's forces and threw the Egyptian forces into panic. Now, I have tried to visualize what this look, what, what is happening here, right? Because this is all what we're doing. We're reading the scripture. We're trying to visualize what went down. So you got the waters parted. Israel has come all the way out. Pharaoh and his army now sees what has happened, and they pursue Israel into the midst of the sea. But as they are in the midst of the sea, the Bible says that God, in the pillar of cloud, looks down upon them and throws them into a panic. Now, I don't know if that means the pillar moved. Like, I know that the pillar, I know God had to move the pillar for them to even go. Then I don't know if, if as they're in, then all of a sudden the pillar comes through the Red Sea behind them. But this idea of God looking down on them, the language indicates that it's not that, just, that God just sat there and went, panic. That pillar of cloud and God in it did something that threw them into a panic. Okay, And I need you to understand it's a supernatural panic. Whatever this means, God supernaturally causes them to panic. And look at what they say to one another. And in the morning watch, uh, or verse 25, he clogs their chariot wheels so they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel for the, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. They get in the middle of that thing. Panic breaks out, horses are going crazy, chariots stop functioning properly, and they look at each other and they think, what are we doing? Now they come to their senses a little bit. And they turn and they start trying to get out. They now flee. Verse 26, then the Lord said to Moses, stretch your hand out over the sea that the water may come back upon the Egyptians and upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and horsemen and all of the host of Pharaoh that had followed them in the sea. Not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on the right and to the left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And look at this. And, Egyptians saw, and, and the Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. They witnessed all of this. When the day rolls anew, Israel now, from their place on the other side of this Red Sea, watches everything God did. They don't do anything. They just stand there and be silent and watch what God does. God wanted Israel to see this. This wasn't just about destroying the Egyptians. This was about destroying the Egyptians 
right in front of Israel for this purpose. Verse 31, Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared Yahweh, and they believed in Yahweh and in his servant, Moses. God wanted them to see this. He wanted them to observe their deliverance without them doing anything. And as a result, they see the great work, they fear the Lord, and they believe in God's servant, Moses. Egypt is now finished once and for all as being a threat to ever enslaving the people of Israel once again, either by choice or by force. They are now standing in a new world having come out of the water. A new covenant was coming soon for them, wasn't it? They were fixing to go to Mount Sinai and get a covenant. God was fixing to make them a, literally a nation with a covenant. A new land awaited them, did it not? And there is so much that I want to say here about this whole thing, and I, but I want to boil it down to a few things. Why does God choose for Christians to be baptized with water? Did God just randomly decide one day, you know, I think water would be a cool thing for Christians to do. I should get baptized with water. That would be, that'd be neat. I don't think so. I think God has sovereignly chosen water to be the picture of the new birth and into a new world because that's exactly what God had already done for Israel. They went through the water and came out a new people in a new world with new promises and a new covenant. Passing through the water was a picture of the newness and the defeat of the enemies. We get baptized as Christians as a picture of passing out of the old into the new death of the, the enemies that we have, the flesh, the world, the devil, death of that into new life, into a new world, into a new covenant, literally a new covenant, into a new world, into a new creation. The pictures that we have in the Gospels, we said that's the very beginning of this series, the pictures that we have in the New Testament and in the Gospels, they're not just randomly selecting this language and this stuff. It is a, the, the old exodus of Israel was a picture or a type of what God was going to do for the whole world. What God was doing from, for people from every nation, tribe, and tongue is he's bringing them out of slavery and bondage into a new world, into a new creation, into a new covenant, and passing through the water of baptism, we are declaring, I'm coming out into this newness. I'm coming out into this new thing that God is doing. And let me end with this. There is a false teaching that says 
after you become a Christian, after you pass through the waters and into the newness and into the the new creation and into the new covenant and your sins have been forgiven and you have eternal life and new creation is awaiting for you and you're, you're walking toward God's final finished product of the new heavens and new earth, there are people that say after you've entered into that, you can lose that newness and go back into slavery. You could forfeit your salvation. You could lose your salvation. You could lose your justification. You could lose your eternal life. You could lose. Why then do we have the picture of the enemies being destroyed and the sea coming back? After Israel crosses the Red Sea, they can't turn around and go back through the sea. The waters have come back. The enemies have been destroyed. There's no way to get back. Your salvation is done. It is finished. And you didn't lift a finger. Not a finger. God did all of this for us. And there is no going back. And the beautiful thing about the new covenant compared to the old covenant is that the new covenant changes our hearts. If you've been born again, you don't want to go back. If you've come into the newness, you don't ever say, you know what I would like? Let's go back into slavery again, into bondage, into oldness. Now, you may, you may go through all the motions, get baptized, say a prayer, come down, say you want to join the church, go through all the motions, and then say, you know what, I think I want to go back here. It's just proof that you never crossed through the water, and the water never crushed your enemy. If you've truly been born again, and you have passed through into the newness, no person that has ever been reborn and regenerated and has eternal life would ever forfeit and give that up. Kill me first. Amen. 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 I will not forfeit that and I will not give that up. And here's the thing. That's not because I got a strong will. That's because the Holy Spirit of God lives inside of me and won't let me do it. It's not me mustering it up. It's not me saying, you know what? By my sheer will, I will never go back. Church, what is the guarantee tomorrow morning that you wake up that you love Jesus? What is the guarantee, church, if you are truly born again, if you've come into the newness, you've come into the new creation, you've been born again, you got eternal life, your sins are forgiven, your enemies have been, have been defeated, what is the guarantee tomorrow that you wake up and love Jesus? God. Not you, God. The new covenant says, I will put my spirit within you. I will take your stony heart out. I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put a new spirit within you, not just his spirit, but give us a new spirit. And then he says, and I will cause you to walk in my statutes. Why do you obey God? God. We're driving home the point here. Yes, he will use all kinds of means to accomplish his purposes. But salvation is of the Lord. Israel experienced it. That was just a picture and a shadow of the great deliverance that the world has experienced in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And there ain't no going back. When Jesus died on that cross and he said it is finished, the work was done. That is the new victory. And Jesus did not rise again because he lost on Friday. 
We've said this a million times, but I just want to re-say it again so people understand. Friday was not Jesus losing, then Saturday Jesus won. Now, the first, I mean, the disciples, they thought that because they didn't have the full understanding yet. There's a reason we call it good Friday. Because when Jesus died, we now know that's the victory. And God the Father raises Jesus from the dead as a declaration that his son won. So church, there's no going back. So ask yourselves this question. In what ways has God brought me into the newness that I'm not fully walking in yet? In what ways has, has God brought me into this new covenant, into this new life, into this new creation, forgiveness? What are the areas of my life that this newness has brought me to that I am not yet walking in? You're not a slave to sin. You're not a slave to sin. You're a child of God now. And that doesn't mean you don't have a flesh, but you are not a slave to it. And there are areas of our lives where we need to get busy walking in the new creation that God has made for us. And as we do that, we will begin changing things around us. And here's the beautiful thing. We started this whole thing off by telling you, when you enter into the newness of God, every day is newness. How exciting is it that tomorrow his his mercies will be new? And then the next day, his mercies will be new. And the next day, his mercies will be new. There will never be a time where we get tired. You know, I just, I don't understand it. We just, we got to go to church today and read the Bible and (laughs) sing songs. And like, what? what, what? Now, Now, I get there are times where we're going through things that doing anything is difficult. But I'm just talking about like the overall life of a Christian, right? Where we where spending time with Jesus or worshiping Jesus or loving Jesus is this burden that we have to do. God brings us into this and every day his mercies are new. And when Jesus comes back, I promise you, after 10 trillion years on the new earth, the next day will be full of newness. We're never going to get bored of the new heavens and new earth. Like, oh my gosh, tomorrow everything's going to be perfect. We'll never get tired of that. Like, it is going to be awesome. And God wired us for eternity. He wired us for eternity.